Well, good morning, everybody. Band, don't go anywhere yet. Um, uh, I'm Steve. I'm one of the elders here. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, when, when, uh, whenever I speak or whoever's speaking, uh, you should know that Ben and I, or Ben and whoever the speaker is, work pretty hard to kind of come up with the, all the elements that go into the service and the things, the songs that are going to make the message pop out and the, the videos and things like that. And when Ben and I met, there was one song in particular that I wanted to do. I said, Ben, if we're going to talk about living a life of joy and what it means to live a life of joy, we've got to do this song. And he kind of looked at me and said, Wallen, I ain't singing that. And so um, I said, Ben, we've got to do that song. And he said, well, I will play the guitar to anything you want to sing. And so, well, what he, he now understands after first service is I'm not really a singer, Okay, but I know that if we do a song about joy, that you guys will help me, right? Yeah, because first service helped me, and there was only about half, of, half as many as there are of you. So we, if we do a song about joy, you guys will help me, right? All right, let's go, man. Let's do it. Man. What was I doing? I forget. Oh. <laughs> I ain't scared. <laughs> I remember, Ben, I remember when you moved into your new house. Ben had a, I have a quote that I love to use from Ben. Ben moved into his, his new house and he had a whole bunch of uh, plumbing issues they had to deal with. And I said, Ben, do you know how to do this? And he said, you know, I don't have a lot of skills, but I ain't scared of anything. And so <laughs> I always remember that. Thanks, guys. Now, how many of you have never heard that song before? Everybody knows that song, right? Oh, one guy. Okay. Thanks, Troy. <laughs> Maybe not like that, he says. No. Um, seems like everybody knows I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. In fact, I don't remember the first time I ever heard that song, so I just always assume that coming out of the womb, I knew it. That, like, that's one of the few things that you know when you're born, that you know the song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. I mean, it's an old song. It's one we've all heard. So why don't we always feel it? That's the question that I have sometimes. And the question that I get, quite frankly, from people who are struggling to lead a life following Christ and still feel sadness, sorrow, or bitterness, or anger. And sometimes we just think, you know, this isn't really the bargain I signed up for, is it? And so what we're going to talk about today is how to live a life of joy. And uh, we're going to continue in our study uh, called Living in HD. And as Paul Mumal, Paul was here last week. Paul, our pastor, is, um, is away skiing this week in Utah. And so, you know, while the cat's away, the mice will play. So, uh, but uh, Paul last week said that the theme of the book of Philippians, the theme of the whole book is joy. And so it's kind of hard to pick any one passage and talk about how it relates to joy, but that's what we're going to do today. And I think it ties in pretty well to what we talked about last week when Paul talked about hope. 
So before we get started with today, does anybody remember the memory verse from last week? I have a gift if somebody remembers it. Anyone? No one? Oh, there's one. Okay, right here. Do you remember it? Go ahead. Can you stand up? What's your name? Uh, Sandy. Sandy. Okay, go ahead. Can you put that up? Is that right, Dan? But our citizens, there you go, eagerly await our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Sandy, I have for you a Genesis coffee mug, all right? This one, this one actually doesn't even have any coffee in it, so it's, it's actually new. It's never been used. Way to go. Good job. Okay. I'm still out of breath. Um, so last week, we found out that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, that was about hope. This is going to be about joy. And so we're going to continue in Philippians. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Philippians 4. We're going to start right in verse 1 and go through verse 9. It says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, to help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for that piece of scripture that you delivered through Paul, and I uh, just pray that as we unpack it in the next few minutes that we can learn how it is that we can live in your kingdom, living a life of joy, and to put behind us the bitterness and sorrow and sadness that we sometimes feel, God. Deliver your message to us now, please, in Jesus' name, amen. So the one thing that we have to remember about Philippians whenever we begin a study, or any of uh, of the the letters in the New Testament, what's, what are commonly called in church language, Paul's epistles or the epistles, um, are that they are letters. And uh, Paul, when he was writing them, he certainly didn't expect, most likely, that they would become scripture that 2,000 years later we would all be reading. But God put these words in Paul's heart to deliver a message to us, not just to the church in Philippi, who Paul was writing this to, but to us. So this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And as Paul said, Paul Mumaw said last week, the entire book the kind of the theme of that letter is joy. Um, Paul was, if you know, if you don't know Paul's story, you should go read it this week. Uh, Paul was uh, not a follower of Christ. He was a Jew um, who was a, uh, a Pharisee, commonly referred to as a Pharisee. He would have been somebody who was persecuting Christians, and he had a, a dramatic, life-changing experience uh, with Jesus after Jesus had risen from the dead, and uh, he turned and became 
the greatest, probably the greatest evangelist of his time, um, one of the, certainly one of the greatest evangelists of all time. In fact, he wrote about two-thirds of the books in the New Testament are Paul's writings. And they're, they're all letters, and they're either to churches or people. And so Paul went and planted, after this encounter, he planted many churches, and one of the churches was in Philippi. And that's what uh, Philippians is, a letter to, those ch- to the church in Philippi. And uh, so the problem with that for us 2,000 years later is sometimes the language gets a little clumsy, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes we read this and there's some very broad, nice, general descriptions of things that we should do to live life as Christ wants us to. And then there are some things that are very specific instructions to certain people. And But what I want to do is try to unpack and see what God may have for us in there, okay? So we're going to talk about joy. The first thing we need to understand about joy is that joy is not happiness. That, that happiness you feel when you buy a new car or when you get a new job or even kind of the deeper happiness of when you have a new baby or get married, those things aren't joy. Those, that's happiness. Joy is much richer and deeper, and, and it's not a feeling that stems from getting something you want. In fact, I love the way C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it in this quote right here. He says, the very nature of joy makes nonsense of our common distinction between having and wanting. So there's this idea here in this quote that, that we have something, and if we get it, we will have joy. But C.S. Lewis says, no, no, the, the nature of joy makes that nonsense because joy is so much longer and richer and deeper. And, and the thing is about joy, the thing that's going to be really tough for us today as we go, drive into this passage is to understand that we can't create joy ourselves. In another letter Paul was writing uh, to the Galatians, Paul said that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And what he meant by that is that joy is one of the things that the Holy Spirit produces in you if you're attached to God, okay? If you're following God, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, joy was the second among them, that um, those are things that we can't make ourselves. We can't manufacture joy, right? Okay? And so um, joy was second. I don't know if that's in priority order or if it's in order of the Greek alphabet. I don't know what it was, but joy was in there and it was second. And so Paul says those are the fruits of the Spirit. So we can't make joy, but what we can do is we can create an environment where joy will thrive, okay? So what we can do, kind of like if my daughter, who's laying there on, on my wife's lap, comes up to me after the service and says she wants a goldfish. We're not going to get a goldfish, so don't ask. But say she wants a goldfish. I can't make a goldfish, I mean, I, could, I probably could. It wouldn't last very long. Uh, but I can't make a goldfish, but I can create an environment where a goldfish will want to stay, right? I can um, put some nice rocks and plants in a nice aquarium and put some water in there and heat it to the right temperature. And if, this, if I happen to get a fish, that fish will want to stick around. And so some of the things that we can do are we can create an environment where when joy comes into our lives, it'll stay. Okay, that's two of the things we can do. Um, and so what I want to talk about is the things from this passage that we can do to create an environment where joy is going to stick around. And I think number one comes from the, the very first few verses, and that's to work toward uni- unity. This is obviously important. It was important to Paul because Paul, in his letter, chooses to call two people out by name, and he says, I plead to you, Euodia and Syntyche, to agree with one another in the Lord. So we don't know much. This is the only time Euodia and Syntyche are two women, those are two female names, believe it or not. Those are two women, and they're in the church, and they're disagreeing with one another, okay? Now, you can make your own joke. I don't know what that is, but there's two women in the church disagreeing with one another, and Paul says, you two need to work out your differences, right? 
So it's kind of like if I'm standing up here on stage and I say, Carrie, you and Taylor, you need to work it out. Okay? I know you have an argument. You need to work it out. So he's calling these people out. So obviously this idea of unity in the church especially is important to Paul. Um, Yodi and Seneki, you know, it's unfortunate that we don't know the nature of their dispute. Because these two women, the only time their name is mentioned in the whole Bible is right here in this. And Paul's offering to, 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 or ordering them to work it out. And so, you know, we can only guess what the dispute might be. But as you start to read and study scripture, you kind of get a, a gift of discernment a little bit. And so I think just from this little passage, I happen to think that what they were disagreeing about was who had the worst name. Okay? Euodia. Or Syntyche. It's kind of like, no, no, my parents hated me more than your parents hated you, right? Because they named me Euodia. So I don't know whose is worse, um, but that may be what they're disagreeing about. I'm not sure. But see, Paul understood that when you don't have unity, you can't have joy. Do you have that one person in your life that you wake up in the morning and you just kind of go, Oh, Lord God, in all your majesty and uh, godliness... Do not send this person my way today. You have somebody like that? And, and then you get to church and they sit right next to you in that seat. Don't look at your neighbor right now. Right? You're going to see that person. You know, for me, um, I, my wife has a great family. And, and um, I love my mother-in-law. She's, a, she's an awesome lady. She's a saint. But my father-in-law and I are not exactly in unity with one another. We don't agree on a whole... Okay, on anything. We don't agree on anything. And so... There will be times when when we're going down to uh, French Lick, which is where her parents live, and it's a three-hour drive. You just can't get there from here. And we'll go. We'll drive down there, and um, inevitably there will be a time when Benita and the kids and my mother-in-law are out playing with the chickens or out in the garden or doing something, and my father-in-law and I find ourselves alone in the living room every time. And he will want to ask me about the economy or politics or religion or anything that we don't have an agreement on. And it is a joy-sucking experience for me to be stuck in that conversation. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've got, the, the, the people who, you've got people in your life who, who feed life into you, and then you've got one or two people that just suck it all out of you, right? <laughs> we all have that person. But we understand that when we don't have unity, when we're not on the same page with somebody, right? When we are not in agreement... It's hard to have joy in our lives, isn't it? And so Paul understood that enough so that he put it down in this letter to the church. He called these ladies out the whole time. He encouraged it. Now, you might read this, and you might think, yeah, I've got disagreements with people, but I tell you, it's not affecting my ability to have joy. They don't think about it. We've got disagreements. We know it's there. We just ignore it, right? But I'm telling you right now that your conflict is important. Look at Ephesians 4.31, what it says there. This is another letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Every form of malice, whether it's the sly look as they walk by or the, uh, the little sigh when they don't speak to you or even, even the more outward things, the bitterness and rage and anger that Paul talks about. Paul says, get rid of it. There's no place for it in the kingdom. Look, if you're going to have joy... You need to be in unity with people. In fact, this is so important to God that it ended up in here. And it's so important to God that one time when Jesus was talking, he said, hey, let me tell you how important this is. If you have a gift that you're bringing to God and you come and leave it at the altar, and then you remember that you're having an argument with your brother, 
Leave that there. Go settle that argument and then come back and give me that gift. Because I'm not going to take your gift. I'm not going to take your offering when you're not in unity with, a, with another brother. And so this is really important to God. That's why it's in here. So it's so important to God and it's important to Paul. I think it needs to be important to us. And so the first thing we can do, I think, to create an environment where joy will thrive is to be in unity together. Number two, I think, is equally important. And that's that we can choose our attitude. Look at Philippians 4.4. 4. This is the verse that we're going to kind of hang on for a while today. This is the one that will be your memory verse for next week. When you walked in, you should have gotten a card with it on there. And put that on your refrigerator, on your steering wheel. Don't look at it while you're driving. Or on your desk, your computer, or something so you can see it all week. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, first of all, that's a real easy one to remember. So everybody should raise their hand next week if Paul asks you about that. The second thing is, Paul is commanding us. God is commanding us through Paul to rejoice. That is a command, right? That's not a, you know, he doesn't say pray to be joyful about this. He says rejoice. You rejoice. It's a command. It's like, it's a choice, isn't it? Paul's saying, hey, this is a choice. And so the mnemonic I'm working on with my kids this week is, today my choice is to rejoice. Will you say that with me? Today my choice is to rejoice. One more time. Today my choice is to rejoice. See, there's a choice there that we make. And every day we make a a choice about what kind of attitude we're going to carry with us, don't we? I love what uh, author and pastor Charles Swindoll says about attitude. He says, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, or home. Stop right there for a minute. Your attitude will make or break your home? Hello. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Today my choice. I'm sorry. Today my choice. Right. When I lose my job, I will rejoice. When my child is sick, I will rejoice. When I struggle with temptation, I will rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, how do you do that, <laughs> right? Because I got to tell you, if I, get, if I leave here and I get hit by another car, I'm probably not going to rejoice about that. Are you? I mean, if, if I go home and I find out that, that somebody in my family is sick and got taken to the hospital while I was here, I'm probably not going to rejoice about that because, quite frankly, our human nature is to be sad about our circumstances, isn't it? If something happens, we feel sorrow. We feel sadness. We feel anger and bitterness and rage. So how do we choose to rejoice in the face of circumstances that we wouldn't pick for ourselves? Well, Paul explains in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, that's what we need, isn't it? When we have circumstances that we don't want to face up to, when we have things go wrong in our lives that that we just don't understand, we need that peace of God that transcends all understanding. And so Paul says, hey, if you're in a situation and you don't like your circumstances, here's what you need to do. Don't worry about it. Pray. Now, I don't know where you stand on the topic of prayer today. I know there are people in this room that are over here that say, you know what, I don't think prayer really works. God's made up his mind a long time ago. This is the the train we're on, and nothing I say, nothing I do is going to change his mind. And there are people over here that say that God hears every prayer, every word, everything that I say and do, God knows about it, and he cares about it, and he wants to hear the desires of my heart. And I happen to believe that that's true. I happen to believe that prayer can change things. I've seen it in my life. But no matter where you are on that scale today, it doesn't matter where you sit, I can guarantee you one thing. Prayer changes your attitude. Whether you believe it changes anything about God or not, prayer will change your attitude. And so what Paul says is, hey, don't worry about it. Pray about it. And what you see is that God starts to work in your heart about that and changes your attitude about it. See, having joy means that you aren't defined by your circumstances. You are not a divorced mother of two. You are not a poor provider for your family. You're not a cancer patient. You're not the one who almost wrecked your marriage with that stupid act. You are a child of the Most High God, created in his image and alive by his grace. That is your identity. Those are your circumstances that you need to rejoice about. See, rejoicing doesn't mean that that I'm going to say, well, at least I'm not that person. You know, I'm going to be glad about that today. Or, you know, this could have been worse. It could have been a lot worse. I'm going to be happy that it's not a lot worse. We need to rejoice about who we are and about our identity as, as, a, as a child of God, right? That's what we need to be, rejoice about. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. But James, the writer James, takes it even a step further. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Look at what James says. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because those trials, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. One translation says, you must finish its work so that you may be perfect. And I think about that. I see these trials around us and, 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 and people get so, and I get so sad and mad and bitter about circumstances sometimes. And James says, no, no, consider that joy. See, yeah, you can be happy, you can rejoice about the fact that you got a new job, and you can rejoice about the fact that you finally closed on that new house you've been wanting. You can rejoice about the good things, but you should also rejoice about the bad things. And James says, no, no, rejoice about the bad things even more because they're developing your character, they're developing perseverance, they're making you closer to God, they're giving room for God to act in your life, so you need to be joyful about that. But we would often choose just not to have those circumstances happen, wouldn't we? I know I would. I mean, if something happens in my life, I say, you know, I'd just rather just skip over that. Can we just get to the next part? You know, if something happens in our marriage and we just say, hey, you know what, let's just, let's just put that behind us. Let's go on to the next thing because I don't really want to talk about that. It's really painful. And, you know, if it was my choice, I would just rather have that not happen. You know, if we get into a financial mess, we would say, you know, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to get out of that. Let's just, let's just pretend that didn't happen and we'll just get past it and we'll go on to the next thing. We would like to have those circumstances not happen. Has anybody ever watched the show Ace of Cakes? Anybody seen that? 
Yeah. Okay. A few people. Good. So um, if you haven't seen this show, let me explain. I've only seen parts of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. But, but if Ace of Cakes, Duff, is that his name? Duff is this guy. And he makes these great, beautiful, glorious cakes, doesn't he? Am I right? And, and if you were to just turn this show on in the middle of it, what you might see at any, on any given episode is like Duff taking a chainsaw down the middle of a cake, right? Or a blowtorch to the outside of cake. Am I right? Am I making this up? No. Okay, good. So I, I haven't seen all this, but I've, I've just seen bits and pieces. But um, so you see that and you go, oh my goodness, why would somebody do that to this beautiful cake? I've heard in the end, the cake is always great, isn't it? It's a beautiful, glorious creation. It's a masterpiece. It's something that you or I could not have created on our own. But what we need to know is that at the beginning of that show, Duff has a plan for what that cake's going to look like. And at the end, it always comes out looking just like the cake that he wanted to make. Well, see, here's the thing. I've heard our lives compared to God making a cake with our lives. And if I were going to make a cake and I was going to choose all the stuff that went in, I'd probably sit there and taste everything before I put it in, right? So I, I get the flour and I scoop it out and oh, you already taste flour? It doesn't taste very good. It's not something that you would choose to put in a cake if you were going to put only things that you like in there. How about vanilla? You ever drink vanilla? It tastes nothing like vanilla, okay? It's bitter. It's nasty. It's terrible. You ever, baking soda? The only person I know that eats baking soda is Jayla Krause. And, she, you know, but it's really terrible. And so if I were making a cake and I were tasting everything, I, it would probably end up with sugar and maybe a little bit of butter. And it wouldn't be a very good cake, Right? But if we choose to understand that God has this bigger plan for this cake, that, that he knows what needs to go in there, and we trust him with it, when it comes out on the other side, okay, there's going to be some stuff that goes in there that we don't like, all right? And there's going to be some whipping and beating and probably some cutting and some heat applied at some point, and we would probably choose not to do that. But on the other end, God's going to have this glorious cake that is our life. And if we trust him with that, if we choose to rejoice in those circumstances and say, hey, this is all part of the process, this is part of the cake that God's trying to make with my life, we can have joy and we can choose to rejoice in the Lord always, no matter what the circumstances. So I think that's two. Two, you can choose your attitude. So the two things that you can do to create an environment where joy will thrive, one is to work toward unity. Two is to choose your attitude. The third thing about that that Paul says, the third thing is the only thing that you can do, that you and I can do to create joy. There's only one thing that you and I can do to create joy. And it's this, submit your life to the king. Verse 4, 7 uh, in the contemporary English version says this, Then, because you belong to Christ Jesus, God will bless you with peace that no one can completely understand. And this peace will can control the way you think and feel. We don't understand what it means to live under a king. In the Western world, we're used to having rulers that we elect, right, based on promises they make, on plans that they have, on on deals that they share with us, and we vote for them, and we know we've got some certainty that in four years, if we don't like them, we can vote them out. Um, We don't always expect our rulers to fix our lives, do we? I know if you watch the news, you wouldn't believe that all the time. But most people don't expect that who the governor is or who the president is or who our congressman is is going to change the way we live from day to day, right? Right? But who the king is, that makes a difference. And you read through the Bible, and and all places through the Bible, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament, you see what it's like to live under a king. When you read stories of Jesus' time, you see these these tax collectors roaming around. 
And these tax collectors have power given to them by the king to take pretty much whatever they want. And so if, if you're a farmer and the king uh, needs half of your goats, he'll come in and take half of your goats. And you can complain, you can fuss, you can fight about it. But in the end, you're going to submit to the king because everything you own belongs to the king. You see a story like uh, King David, who is looking for a place to build the temple to God. And he, he goes to a, a man named Rona, who owns a threshing floor. And a threshing floor is basically a plot of land. It would have been outside the village, and it would have been a, a large plot that's kind of exposed to the wind. And so what they do is it'll either be stone or, or hard-packed dirt, and uh, the wheat, they'll take the wheat and they thresh it like that, and the hard kernels will fall to the ground, and the chaff goes up and gets blown away by the wind. And so there's this big area outside the village where they, where they thresh the wheat, and that's called a threshing floor. And so David was walking along, and he says, this is the perfect place to build my temple. He goes, says to Rona, I need the threshing floor. And Rona says, king, it's yours. And David says, no, 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 I, I want to buy it from you. But, but Rona understood everything I have belongs to the king. That if I'm going to continue to live in this kingdom and I'm going to be happy, I need to submit whatever I have to the king. Or you read in the book of Esther, you read the story of Esther and, and uh, King Artaxerxes, and he's, he's looking for a new wife. And so everybody in the, in, the, in the country sends their virgin daughters to the palace to try to become Artaxerxes' new wife. And I don't know about you, but it would be hard for me to send one of my daughters to go be the king's wife, to give up one of my daughters, to submit that to the king, right? But these people understood that if you submit your life to a king, everything you have, everything you are, everyone in your family belongs to that king. We don't always get that. We're cynical. We're distrustful. We're skeptical. And you know what? Sometimes we have a right to be, don't we? But because these people submitted their lives to the king, it was in the king's best interest to solve their problems. So if... I like the fact, if I'm a king, that you give me, you offer to me everything you have. And so if you have a problem and you come to me with it, I'm going to do my best to try to solve it, right? And so, uh, you know, if I'm your king, we won't go to war. If I'm your king, nobody will go hungry. And they make these promises. And people come to the king expecting them to solve their problems. And then along comes this other king, this Jesus in the New Testament. And Jesus says, hey, if you follow me, listen to this promise. If you follow me in this world you will have trouble. Now, stop right there for a minute because I spent a couple years in marketing. And, um, you know, we didn't always come up with the best catchphrases or slogans. But have you ever, you ever think you'd watch a Super Bowl commercial and see something that says, if you buy our product, you will have trouble? You think you'd buy that? How about, how about a politician that says, vote for me and you'll have trouble? You think you'd vote for him? Yeah, probably not, right? So here comes Jesus and he says, hey, if you follow me in this world, you'll have trouble. And if I were advising Jesus, which I don't do because I've given up on that, but if I were advising him, I'd say, hey, maybe change your tagline, you know? But Jesus knew what he was doing because the second part of that phrase is where we get hope. He says, hey, in this world, you will have trouble, (laughs) but take heart for I have overcome the world. And so Jesus says, if you follow me, I've overcome your troubles. I've overcome your trials. I've overcome your circumstances. If you follow me in this world right here, this world that we live in now, you and me in 21st century uh, Noblesville, Indiana, if you follow me, we're going to have troubles here. That's what Jesus tells us, flat out. 
No lies, no campaign promises. If you follow me, you will have troubles. But take heart, for I've overcome the world. I've overcome your circumstances. I've overcome the problems in your family. I've overcome your financial difficulties. And if you stay with me, you can overcome them too. That's the hope we get in Jesus Christ. And see, I think that's where our joy comes from because the opposite of joy is not sadness or sorrow or despair. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. If we have no hope, then we can't have joy. But if our hope is in Christ, and Paul Mumal said last week, everybody's hope is somewhere. If our hope is in Christ, then we can have real joy. So there are kings that want to solve our problems and make sure we can eat and keep us fat and happy. And here's Jesus talking about trouble. But that's the king I want, right? I, want, I don't want the king that makes promises. I want the king who has overcome the world. The king that's overcome our circumstances. The king that is going to rescue me from this world. That's the king I want to submit to. So remember how this works. There are a couple things we can do to create an environment for joy. But the one thing, the only thing that we can do to really create joy in our lives is to submit our life, everything we have, everything we are, everything we want to be to the king. If you want joy, that's what you need to do. You belong to the king. And Paul says, because you belong to Christ Jesus, you'll get a peace that passes all understanding. And that's where our joy comes from. Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you for your message today. I'm so thankful that you've given us a path to a life of joy. And uh, God, I know that it's not easy. And I know that there are people that are sitting here frustrated now because they think that what I've just said is that their problems don't matter to you or that their problems are small. And there are people that are in dire straits in their marriage. And there are people in this room that are in such trouble financially, they just don't know where to turn. And they hear this guy up on stage and they think that I'm saying that, that their problems don't matter. And, Lord, that couldn't be further from the truth, and you know that that's true, that you care about their problems. But that the hope you offer is greater than that, and that's that the problems of this world are temporary. And though they're not small, and though they seem important, that you've overcome them. And so, Lord, I just pray for the people that are here and are struggling with, uh, they really need to put their hope in you. And uh, I pray for them as we go through the next uh, couple elements of this service that they think about and pray about uh, what they might need to do with that, God. Thank you for today. Thank you for this group that's here. In Jesus' name, amen.